Well, welcome to Trinity Church. Thank you very much, Seth and Annalise. It's, it's uh, good to have you back, Seth. Um, you don't want to see DJ and I do elder karaoke. Uh, it's, that's down our list of, you know, Seth, oh, wonderful to have uh, David Ayler's back up and DJ's volunteered and you don't want to get much lower than that. Let me just tell you that. Um, thank you guys for coming. Uh, my name's Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. We get to open up the book of Ruth and uh, finish it up this week. If you didn't get a listening guide, just lift up your hand and uh, Alex will get you one from the back. I'll help aid your uh, listening. Uh, I have the privilege of the uh, last time I preached to you, it was the first sermon in the book of uh, Ruth. And uh, I won the lottery here and uh, get the last sermon a two. And uh, if you remember, what, a month and a half ago when we first started the book of Ruth, um, it was a story that uh, went from good times to very quickly, in the first verse, went to what could be described as not the best of times. And uh, now in keeping with the Hebrew way of telling a story, beginning middle, not end, beginning, middle, beginning, uh, we, we go back to uh, the best of times. And th- these times uh, share similarities uh, with where we started, but is actually a far better situation here at the end. Just uh, by way of reminder, wh- wh- where did we start? We started with uh, Naomi, had a husband, two sons living in the land of Israel, the promised land, and uh, they had food, well, at least until the second half of verse 1. And uh, now we end in a similar place. Uh, this story actually mirrors the a plot line and resolution of God's story spanning the whole Bible. That it goes from the beginning in the garden to the end in a new what could be described as garden city. God's people dwell intimately with God again in a place free from sin, free from the effects of sin. It's Eden, only better. And back to our story in the book of Ruth, we see God reverses the curses Naomi had pronounced on herself and her family. Today we're going to see how the calamity that falls upon Naomi is all reversed. And we end up back at the beginning, only better. So let's pray and then let's uh, dig into uh, our passage for today. Father God, we come to you. We need the help of your spirit. I cannot preach. We cannot listen without your work in us. I pray that we would not uh, stand on, stand over your word, proclaiming my thoughts, our thoughts into your word, but that we would let your word stand over us and would let our lives be changed by what you have to say uh, to us through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Ruth chapter 4, starting with verse 13. 
So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. So first of all, God reverses Ruth's childlessness with conception. Have the phrase here, Boaz enters into her. All right, that, that's a euphemism for Boaz going into a Ruth's uh, tent on wedding night, and you guys know what happens. And uh, then we get this uh, unique phrase, the Lord, that, that's God's covenant name here, here used, gave her conception, not used often in the Old Testament, but it's a concept that's all over uh, the Old Testament, especially the, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five uh, books of uh, the Bible. And it echoes the divine gifts of conception uh, to the patriarchs. Think Rachel, think Leah. And uh, by, by so doing, it indicates the importance of what is happening here. Just one notable difference, say, from the conception of that of Sarah is that the text never indicates that Ruth was a barren. It you know, indicates she didn't have a child, but never calls her barren. If you ever want a very interesting read as a side note, pick up some Jewish, old Jewish commentary. They get into how Ruth had a half a womb and a God formed. Very interesting read. Probably not exactly what happened here. But the main point of this uh, passage, uh, this verse, is that this pregnancy is a gift from God. This is just the second time in this book that God directly intervenes in in the affairs. The first time was uh, way back in uh, a couple chapters ago when uh, God visited the house of bread that didn't have bread, and God gave the house of bread bread. But Naomi surely interpreted her circumstances and the fact that you know, she had two sons, get married, both have 10 years, that you know, the, their wives aren't, aren't on the pill, they're not trying not to get pregnant. It, how, do they want a descendant? And how do both of them go 10 years without providing a descendant. She certainly interpreted that as judgment on her family. You move into Moab, sons marrying Moabite wives, and and maybe so. But here, God reverses that apparent judgment and provides Ruth and Boaz with a son. You, You can't help but think, of Boaz's uh, prayers earlier in the book, chapter 2, chapter 3, that Ruth would be repaid for her uh, faithful devotion uh, to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And just three verses earlier from uh, DJ's passage last week, this answers the, the prayer of Naomi and that of the people at the gate and the elders that offspring be born to uh, carry on 
of the family name. And not only is that a, a beautiful way of foreshadowing the event and telling a story, but there's a, a far more magnificent truth underlying this, that God answers prayer. It's in his timing, as I'm sure Naomi prayed for the entirety of those 10 years her, her sons were, were married. Uh, I'm sure she, she prayed relentlessly for uh, them to have uh, sons. But that wasn't God's plan at that time and in that way. God did hear and God did answer. And, and today, be encouraged if you're praying for a long time. It seems kind of repetitive. You're, you, you almost feel like it lacks genuineness because you keep praying for someone or something and over and over again, and it seems like God isn't answering. It seems like nothing is, is changing. Be encouraged that God does answer a prayer and, and reminded that it's in His timing, it's in His way that God loves to give good gifts to his children. And he does exactly that here in this passage, providing uh, Ruth and Boaz a son. So Ruth has played a crucial part in this story. Uh, Just think about it. She has moved from Moabite in chapter 1 to uh, 2.10. She was called foreigner. Three verses later, and in, verse, uh, in chapter 3, verse 9, she's called maidservant. And here she ends the story as wife and mother. We find her at the beginning. She was a pagan worshiper, but one who turns to Israel's God and actually demonstrates more faith than uh, the Israelite Naomi. And in this scene... Uh, quickly ushers Ruth and Boaz uh, off stage as the focus is on uh, Naomi, the book's main character, and the baby. So let's keep going. Verse 14. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. So Naomi left the promised land because the house of bread had no bread. And remember how she described it and her state when she returned. Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Such an interpretation of events was a perspective, but a dead wrong one one focused on present circumstances, one filled with the lies of the devil, one divorced from faith. 
And here the neighbor women make it explicit what the narrator has made implicit all throughout this uh, book until this point that God has been working in all this. God has not dealt bitterly with Naomi. He has not abandoned her. He has not emptied her. God has dealt in a way that results in people worshiping, praising, honoring his name. And he rightfully deserves such praise as this passage proclaims. And we see this phrase, uh, not without a redeemer or kinsman redeemer. So think, think back to last week and DJ explained you know, Boaz acting as the kinsman redeemer in face of that other relative who, I just love it, who could not. That, that's great. But this passage here doesn't refer to Boaz. You'll see in verse 15 that that context indicates that Boaz is not the redeemer that's uh, talked about uh, here in these verses. And, and the narrator isn't using uh, this word redeemer or kinsman redeemer in the technical sense of you know, gaining right to a state, uh, keeping a man's name from annihilation. Uh, and these women are not primarily interested in that. This refers to the child. And as you'll see, we still haven't named the child. Uh, We got to wait a couple more verses for for that to happen. And um, highlighting, you know, that's highlighting the child's function here. We'll we'll learn more shortly. But, But why call this child a redeemer? Well, the basic meaning of the term is something like a guardian of family interests. You know, that's why, as you saw earlier, Boaz was called a redeemer long before he actually did the act of uh, redemption in our passage last week. That's why the other unnamed uh, relative was called a redeemer, even though he turns out to be an awfully lousy one. You know, what's this child going to do? He's going to care for Naomi. He's going to carry on the family name. And uh, more details on that are coming. It says here in this verse, may his name be renowned in Israel. So who does this refer to? You might be tempted to take this as referring to, to God and his covenant name. But the nearest reference here is to the child, that it's the child's name would be renowned in Israel. This is anticipation you're building for verse 17 and this greater descendant to come. Also, remember from last week, just three verses earlier, another Redeemer's name is prayed to be renowned. Boaz, that may his, his name be renowned in Bethlehem. But this Redeemer, this guardian of the family interests, is proclaimed to be renowned in all Israel, and not just in the small town of Bethlehem. 
But, but don't think that this excludes God's name getting renowned because ultimately this child's name being renowned is to God's glory as we, we can see weakness written all over this passage pointing to the, the strength and the sovereignty of God in this. So the text goes on and gives us more details as to what the child does. Verse 15, he shall be a restorer of life, literally causes life to return. There's a nice little play on words, return and left from the previous verse, not left you without a redeemer. That Naomi's depressed state in chapter one is reversed here. The provision of a child changes her countenance, changes her spirits. She has hope. She has a reason to live. And then the next phrase here, and a nourisher of your old age, literally provide your gray hairs with the implied uh, with food. Naomi has security in her old age knowing that uh, when she reaches, reaches that old age, this baby will be in his prime and will provide for her. Here we see God's watchful care, God's provision for Naomi, both physically and emotionally. Naomi didn't believe it earlier, but it's always been true that God is a good father taking good care of his children, might not be able to see it at all times, but still very much there. I think all of us, in some shape or form, feel like Naomi in chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, at some time, empty, depressed, feeling abandoned, worried, bitter, that there's physical needs there, but the the need goes far deeper than that. But let me tell you about a greater redeemer that this uh, child points to. His name is Jesus. He is the true and and righteous guardian of the interests of God's family. If you are in Jesus, your hope is secure. Your life has meaning, true meaning, not just some sort of meaning that you create to help carry you through the the rough days. Jesus is in complete control of the affairs of God's house. Nobody can snatch you from his hand I was thinking uh, this week about um, about perseverance, the perseverance of the saints, and, and I was uh, reminded that I believe I'm going to persevere to the end, not because I'm so enamored with my faith and my ability to keep myself in the faith. I, I'm not. I, I'm enamored with the grip of Jesus 
on me. Paul can proclaim in, in Romans that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord because Jesus isn't letting go of his people. He's not letting go of me. If you are here today and you're in Jesus, he's not letting go of you. That is good news of a greater redeemer. Uh, Are you believing that? You, You need to be reminding yourself of this truth, especially when you feel like Naomi in chapter one, feel like the Almighty has dealt bitterly with you, has abandoned you, emptied you, brought calamity upon you. Jesus is the guardian of the interests of the family of God. So we have hope, true hope. And and how does this hope work itself out? Well, it works itself out in the joy of the Lord. That this joy isn't dependent on circumstances. Naomi knows this full well. It isn't just spiritual zooft to artificially make you feel better. Naomi knows that. This joy doesn't deny the reality of suffering. Naomi knows that. Instead, it is overwhelmed by God and his goodness and grace, which makes life's suffering, which there is plenty of that, shrink to its real size. It's the simple truth that Jesus is both in full control and he cares for me. And in this face of intense suffering, uh, Naomi has even more reason to be joyful in the Lord. Let's finish up verse 15. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Let me tell you a story. I, I tell this, uh, ask this whenever I uh, interview people at the hotel. So you're driving down a mountain, steep mountain, treacherous conditions, pouring outside in your two-seater car. And you peer out the window and you can barely make out at a bus stop. Doesn't look like that bus is coming anytime soon. You see the love of your life, your mentor growing up, and this 80-year-old woman with her oxygen tank waiting at this bus stop. What do you do? So I get all kinds of answers when I ask this in an interview. I, I get the answer from, can, can I just speed by and hope they don't notice? <laughs> you know, to which I play the devil's advocate and say, what if you're the love of your wife sees that? You know, I'm just saying, often I get, so well, I mean... The greater good, maybe that 80-year-old woman that's, you know, I can't leave, leave that lady there and 
what in the world are you asking me this question for? And uh, I would let you sit on it, but that might distract you through the rest of the sermon. And I know you guys are smarter than the average person. You probably already figured this out. But the best answer is one that's a little bit outside the box that you let your mentor drive the 80-year-old woman home and then you can hang out with the love of your life and get wet in the rain just waiting for, uh, for that bus uh, to show up. You have to think a little bit outside the box. And, and that's exactly what happens here in this passage. So, okay, you know, Ruth isn't fully out of the picture yet, but the narrator here is very careful, doesn't, doesn't name her, gives her a legal status in relation to Naomi, daughter-in-law, kind of highlighting the radical nature of what the narrator is saying here that it's one thing to have one son more than, is worth more than seven sons. It's pretty good. How about a daughter worth more than seven sons? Especially, you know, think this culture, this time, patriarchal society. That's pretty radical. But how about a Moabite girl who married into the family? She is worth more than seven sons, number of perfection. That's insanity. That's craziness. Naomi pronounced a judgment on herself and her family at the beginning of this book when her sons died. But throughout this whole story, she has had someone better than seven sons with her. And, and at least for a short while, uh, she missed it. Why? Because she, she had this box, and Ruth didn't fit in this box she had created because of Ruth's gender, because of her family origin. Again, the Bible isn't downplaying the tremendous suffering in Naomi's life, especially in losing her husband and two sons, but it shines a spotlight on the value of Naomi's faithful daughter-in-law, worth more than perfect number of sons. So think about it. What blessing of God have you been blind to because you have your box set up and God's provision doesn't fit inside that box. Maybe in somewhat similar fashion to Naomi, it's a person that God has placed in your life, not who you were expecting or even hoping for, and you're blind to it. Maybe it's a way God is growing you or working in you, but it doesn't fit inside your box of where you thought you'd be, where you want to be, what you hoped to mark for your location, your profession. Maybe it's 
physical provision in, in a way that you easily discount, that God has provided for you. You just were hoping it'd be in a different, different way. And here we see that not only does God give Naomi the blessing of a better than perfect number of sons, daughter-in-law, but we see in the next verse, he pours out another blessing on her. Verse 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. Remember chapter one, Naomi basically said she was too old to have more kids. She talked hypothetically of, if I were to get married today and have a son today, you know, would her, her daughter-in-law's wait you know, for her sons to grow up and, and be old enough to get married. It, 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 wasn't, it wasn't happening. She already had sons. They, they grew up, got married for 10 years before they, they died. She wasn't having a, a, another son. But this passage proclaims that Naomi has a son. If you think about it carefully enough, you, you realize that there's technically no bloodline between Naomi and this child. The narrative hasn't tried to hide that at all, but instead is revealing how this child is beautifully grafted in to Naomi's family tree, both through Boaz's selfless actions as kinsman redeemer, that think to, to last week again, the, giving the legal justification to call this baby her son. And uh, Ruth's love for Naomi helps make this happen. You know, practical justification. Letting her spend time with this baby and uh, maintain this close relationship with the baby. And, and we see that Naomi embraces this glorious new stage of life, helping care for this baby. That's exactly what's meant by nurse. It's not medical profession. It's not breastfeeding. This word, guys and girls do it, this Hebrew word. So um, obviously not not that. Uh, She is caring for uh, this uh, baby. And Ruth understood the significance of this child to Naomi and uh, lets her play a major role in uh, his upbringing. And then, in curious fashion, the neighbor women announce the child's name as Obed, meaning one who serves. Now, now don't think it was actually the neighbor women who had the opportunity to name uh, this uh, child. I'm, I'm confident that's not how it went down. The child was named long before they had a chance to chime in. But here it is, the community around Naomi is affirming the appropriateness of this name, Obed, one who serves. This is really good storytelling as the narrator places 
the name on the lips of the women of the town, indicating Obed's role in serving as he grows up. A little bit ambiguous. Is this referring to serving Naomi? Is it referring to serving God? Uh, The uh, former is the most obvious, but uh, I would say the answer is is yes to both. As he serves Naomi, he's going to be serving God. And we'll see more uh, as is recorded in other uh, history that he does faithfully serve God. And here we see by proclaiming that Naomi has a son, that the narrator elicits the response from the readers that, wow, this is a miracle. Now you might think, well, that's not exactly the same type of miracle as we see in other places in the Bible. It's not the exact same thing as Jesus feeding the 5,000. I'm confident his disciples weren't over that ragtag bunch. They, they were not that good at securing bread and uh, fishing. Not the same thing as Jesus turning water into wine. These disciples weren't master distillers in the, in the back, back of the, the house, you know, turning that water into wine before John MacArthur could turn it back to water. Not exactly the same thing. But this passage is proclaiming this is a miracle. And a miracle that employs human means. Now, if you're a cessationist, you might be a little uncomfortable, but but that's okay. The inspired writer of this book, you know, through the Holy Spirit... It presents what has happened here as a miracle. And it does use human agency, human means. You know, we've discussed the last few weeks all the plans, responses, loving kindness, faith, and certainly a God sovereign over all of it. And don't discount the miraculous nature of God working here to provide a son for Naomi. And and let me say by extension, uh, don't push aside God's miracles in your life, in the life of us here as a church, just because they're mixed with human means. There's, we have some medical explanation or some, you know, physical explanation for, well, because this person like that, you know, that's how I got that promotion. Or don't discount the miracles that God is working. Uh, this week in group, well, let's discuss this question. How has God been working miracles in your life? How have you seen the miraculous hand of God present in your life? may be mixed with, and often is mixed with, human means. But let's not discount God's work and somehow chalk that up to to man and that somehow it would happen without a 
sovereign God in control of all of it. It gets better. Let's see where this story goes. And verse 17, they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So, so it could stop right there. And that would be a great ending. But Hebrews love a good genealogy. And that's exactly what we have. A promise far better than anything you'll find in ancestry DNA. Well, let's keep going. It's exciting stuff. Verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Solomon. Solomon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. We see here that God reverses Naomi's lack of a descendant with a king. So what I love about this genealogy and Hebrew genealogies just in general is that there's an ambiguity with the word fathered that easily allows to skip generations, skip one generation, skip a couple generations, and uh, makes this far more than just like recording descendants and um, a science of doing your research, making sure you have your family tree correct. It makes it into an art. And Hebrews love genealogies of 10. It's exactly what we have here. Look who's number seven in that line. Number seven is typically a, a highlighted descendant. That is Boaz. Here he functions as the turning point, beginning of a new era, starts a much steeper upward trajectory. And the important part here is he is following God. He is faithful, as we saw through uh, this book. And, and then we can't miss the, the ultimate one is the, the one who's number 10. And uh, just as in verse 17, that's David, the king. The original audience of, of this book you know, would have esteemed David the king very highly. Uh, you know, they would read this and could not envision a better ending to this you know, fairy tale book, you know, ending with David the king. And that in those dark days of the judges, God wasn't primarily working through these heroic rescue warriors as we see in Judges. He was working through them, but he was primarily working through very ordinary, quite messed up individuals like we see in this book. Who, individuals who demonstrated covenant fidelity. These individuals include a couple of widows and uh, one who was a Moabite and an Israelite widow who was um, dealing with severe bouts of depression, faithlessness. You know, there's an upright guy in this story who does the right thing, functioning as the kinsman redeemer, but the book closes with 
the redeemer whose name is to be renowned in all of Israel is a baby. And that's exactly the God we serve using a bunch of ordinary but faithful people to lead to something greater than they could have ever imagined. Wow. I know many days I feel like, I'm sure you feel like, these characters in this story in the sense that just very ordinary, just trying to make the, you know, what's the next best thing to do? You're wondering about the importance of the mundane things, you know, I do of you, that you do throughout your life. And while I have better news than anything you'll hear in Judaism. And, and you know, I'll, I love my uh, Jewish commentaries, the ones that go right to left. That's, is, uh, that's really good. But any, better than anything, you know, they can proclaim that, yes, it ends with David, the king here. And David was a, a good godly man. He, he messed up pretty big, but uh, scripture proclaims he is a man after God's own Heart, but ultimately, this book doesn't just point to David, the king, because David points to a far greater Davidic descendant, a forever king who crushes all of God's enemies and ushers in a kingdom, as Hebrews says, that cannot be shaken. This kingdom has arrived and will be consummated with every knee bowing, every tongue confessing that Jesus is Lord. He is master. He is king. Don't just look to Boaz from this book to learn how to care for those in need. Don't just look to Ruth for how to show loving kindness even though viewed as an outsider. Don't just look to Naomi for how to deal with bitterness and depression and come out with quite strong faith. Look to Jesus as your king. Reorient your life around his kingship, around his kingdom. So practically, what does this mean? Just a couple pointers under that. The line leading up to Jesus was filled with a bunch of nobodies that the world disregarded. You don't be afraid to not be recognized. Be faithful to Jesus and worship him as your king. If Jesus is sovereign over all things, and if we believe in his kingship, I, I can trust that he's working even when I don't see it. And we saw that many times in, in this book of Ruth. And I can live with hope because Jesus has come. He is the king. I know his kingdom will be consummated. That is the radical difference the kingship of Jesus should make in my life, should make in your life if you are a 
Christian here today, if, if that doesn't resonate with you, and you're living your life pretending you are your own king, living for your own mini kingdom. Let me tell you, it's not going to work. You cannot, though you might try to be in control of all things, it's not going to work. Just as there were you know, many families in Naomi's day building their own legacies, scoffing at this kind of messed up, almost near extinction family line of Naomi. God was building his kingdom, working his purposes. He was not stopped. He was not thwarted. And it leads to David and leads to David's far greater descendant, Jesus. If you don't know Jesus in that way as your king today, look to him as your king. Cry out to him. He is the true king that this book uh, points to. Think on that this week. How can I live in service to Jesus as my king? How can I reorient my life? If, if Jesus is my king, how should I live my life in light of that truth? Uh, pray with me. Father God, thank you for sending us Jesus. I pray that we would live in light of his kingship this week, that we would believe that Jesus is worthy. He is, as we read in Revelation, he is able to break the seal and open the scroll. He is the Lion of Judah, David's root, the Lamb who died to ransom us, the slave. We thank you for, for Jesus, that we have the whole canon and we can see how this story of ordinary but faithful individuals leads to our King Jesus. I pray that because of our study in this book, we would worship, honor, praise Jesus more fully, that we would grow in our affection for him, that the desires to put other things in his place would fade away as we see his glory. We pray this all in his name because of what he has accomplished on our behalf. Amen.